You are listening to the cycling podcast at the 2023 Tour de France. Today we're in Nogaro. Where are we, Francois? We're in the Circuit de Nogaro, that's a model racing uh, race course. Uh, it's, it's one actually the, the, the oldest uh, circuits in uh, uh, tracks in, in France, actually. It started to be really operative in uh, 1960. I mean, in, in, the, in this, in the shape, uh, it's now it's called Paul Armagnac, which is, uh, which is uh, rather odd. I mean, it's, it's named after a, a local uh, a driver who uh, yeah, competed in a number of Grand Prix. At the time, Formula One, you had World Championship Grand Prix and others that were not in the World Championship. Uh, in this case, they were not in the World Championship, but Paul Armanek died tragically in Montlhéry, 1962, and the, uh, and the, um, the circuit uh, took his name. And he made, I mean, he had a typical name of the area, because as everybody knows, Armagnac is the local drink here, and Paul Armagnac bore the name of the most famous drink of the area. And the circuit was built itself because it was a response to the number of casualties in street racing, motor racing. So they built the circuit here at Nogaro and the Tour de France finished here. And by my reckoning, the first Tour de France stage to finish on a motor racing circuit since 1989 in Spa-Francorchamps in Belgium when Raoul Alcala, the Mexican rider, won. There have been other races on motor racing circuits the worlds were in zolder in imola the vuelta as we're here a little bit later has had finishes on motor racing circuits and a stage of paris nice finished at magnicourt a few years ago but uh, i quite like a race finishing on a motor racing circuit although the riders do tend to look a little bit like ants and well, well we talk about the subtleties of the the run into the finish I should say that of course is francois Tomazo. My name is Lionel Burney, and we're also here, of course, with Mitch Docker. How are you doing, Mitch? I'm doing well. I'm doing very well. I've got a cold beer in hand. It's that time of day. Ready to rock and roll. Ready to rock and roll, indeed. Well, let's start, as we often do, with the tale of the attack. It's time for the tale of the attack. Well, with stage four from Dax to Nogaro, Finishing on the motor racing circuit, there wasn't a great deal of motoring until the very end of the stage, was there? It was real snoozy stuff for most of the day, no breakaway at all for a long, long while. In fact, it wasn't until uh, around about 86 kilometres to go that Anthony de la Place of Arkea, Samsic and Benoit Cosnefois of AG2R went away. Uh, yesterday there was a, a Breton rider, Laurent Pichon, in the break. Today it was two riders from Normandy, so the the northern French clearly feeling that uh, you know there's a bit of a rivalry brewing up there. Anyway, they were never going to make it all the way to the finish here in Nogaro. They were caught with 23 kilometres to go, and then everything was coming down to the the, the much talked about bottleneck with around t- 10 kilometres to go, and then the sweep onto the circuit and. Well, there were a couple of crashes, three crashes, I think, on the run-in. The first saw Fabio Jakobsen of Sudar Quickstep go down. Jaco Guarnieri of Lotto Destiny also went down in that one. Then Luis Leon Sanchez of Astana and Mate Mohoric of Bahrain went down. And then we also saw Soren Werdenskuld of Unox and Axel Zingel of Kofidis go down. They kind of hit the barriers, really, as uh, the barriers kind of pinched in a little bit. 
and at the finish it was Jasper Philipson who won for the second day in a row for Alpecin de Kerning. They got it spot on again. In the minor places, Caleb Ewan and Phil Bauhaus swapped places from yesterday. They were second and third. Brian Cockart was fourth. Mark Cavendish improved one place on yesterday's result. He was fifth. Now, there's no real change on the top six of GC at all, so Adam Yates will take the yellow jersey into the Pyrenees tomorrow. Still six seconds ahead of his UAE Team Emirates teammate today, Pogacar. Simon Yates third, Victor Lafay fourth, Wout van Aert fifth, Jonas Vingegaard sixth. And there's this group of riders all tied on 22 seconds who seem to be playing musical chairs in the GC at the moment because the count back on stage placings means that they swap places a little bit. Jasper Philipson took the green jersey not just because he won the stage, but because he also won the intermediate sprint. And so he takes that from Lafay and has a 70-point lead in the points competition. Nielsen Paulis is still in the polka dots. Kade Pogacar is in white. A quick stop press as we were driving to our hotel in Poe. We heard that Matthew van der Poel of Alpecin de Koning, Jasper Philipsen's lead-out man, of course, was relegated from 16th place to 22nd, which was last place in the group that he was in. He was also penalised some points in the points competition and fined for an irregular move in that final sprint, which endangered other riders. And tomorrow we go into the Pyrenees, but in the next part we're going to analyse the sprint, see who did well, see who did less well, and ask why are there crashes when they have so much road to play with? This is Sam Piquet, the voice of Radio Tour, sitting at the back of the back. Bonjour, bonjour, and hello from the Nogaro racetrack. As much as I love the Tour de France, sometimes one has to admit that some stages are extremely boring. I don't remember in the last, let's say, 10 years, a stage as uneventful as this one. Um, the riders decided that they needed a rest, and it was a well-deserved rest after the Basque Country. It ended up with a bunch of sprints on the Nogaro racetrack uh, with two crashes, something that we don't like to see. Uh, thumbs up to Jasper Philipsen. But to sum things up, well, finishing on a motorsport racetrack is never that eventful. I mean, it just doesn't work. You're used to seeing speed on those racetracks and Ferraris and Formula 1s or Porsches. And it doesn't work for cycling. Um, plus... There, there really is a lack of spectators on the side of the road. Um, and I'm not sure it's a great um, solution for uh, the finish of a stage of the Tour de France. Uh, I remember working in Tokyo for the Olympics on the cycling race. That too ended uh, on a racetrack. And it just looked like the riders were riding so slowly, which they, of course, are not. Um, also remember Imola, the World Championships. Well, that ended up ended uh, in fine fashion when Julien Alaphilippe went on to become the world champion. Vive la France! That's it for stage four. Can't wait for the Pyrenees. The cycling podcast at the 2023 Tour de France is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. This is Science in Sport Chief Executive Stephen Moon on what he learned about the cycling scene in Sierra Leone and in particular 
the governing body there, when he first started working with the organisers of the Tour de Lunsar. It's bureaucratic and it's not actually geared up for the benefit of cyclists. So the, um, the people running the Cycling Federation and the, indeed the Olympic Association in Sierra Leone, uh, bureaucrats uh, have got no interest in progressing or in change. I think I was looking up the record of one uh, of one gentleman who'd been in the same position for 41 years. So just getting through that, and we, we've tried to support and help things like getting a new president re-elected. So for example, getting a progressive figure such as Kareem elected to the, um, to the Cycling Federation, you can't move that along. And while that's in place, it's always going to be very, very difficult for these this community of riders to make any real progress. Check out the full range of Science in Sport products at scienceinsport.com. The boys did really good work today, so there was a big upgrade from yesterday. I just don't have the the power after such an easy day and then, then sprinting like here. So but all these corners makes no sense in uh, in the final, but uh, it is what it is. So we improved from yesterday, and now it's onto the mountains, and then uh, still far to Paris. So uh, still possible. Oh, but people are riding into each other. No one knows. Uh, they have brakes on the bike, so uh, of course it will happen that that we crash. And you know, it's not always nice when the when the finish is, is so wide as it is today. So I, I heard the crash behind me. I heard a front wheel losing some spokes, and then. Yeah, the big boom, but uh, luckily I don't think we have anyone in it, so that's good. Well, that was Mads Pedersen of Lidl Trek there, talking about the riders not using their brakes. I mean, the crashes kind of characterised the sprint, didn't they? And, well, took out Fabio Jakobsen for one thing. M Mitch, what is it about the sprint finishes? It seems that sometimes when there's more road to play with, there's more problems for the sprinters. Well, that's the thing. Like, yeah, we're used to going, well, we, I'm not there anymore. The riders are used to going around corners one or two abreast, single file, through cities. The more narrow it is, that's what they're used to doing. Suddenly, they've got a whole lot of road, and the road is actually built for going around corners. So I guess what happens is, you know, you're going around five, six wide instead of two or three, and, you know, having that squeeze, which, you know, it, it's very dangerous going around a corner as a whole peloton turns that corner, you know what I mean? It doesn't string out. I'm assuming that is what has was the problem today. A really good point when I heard the press conference after the race was that yep, Jasper Philipson did also say it was such an easy day that when the pace went on, everyone was fresh. So everyone sort of thought they could have a go, if that makes sense. Yesterday was a much harder finish. A lot of people weren't there just purely because it was hard or they were just hanging into the wheels. You get a fresh finish like this, like you said, big roads, the bunch is going through these corners, and there was just a, you know, a bit of a collision there. Well, let's hear from someone you spoke to this morning, Mitch, John Degenkolb, who coincidentally has won two finishes on motor racing circuits back in 2012 at the Vuelta, and a few years ago, I can't remember which year, at Magnicourt in uh, the middle of France during Paris-Nice. And this is what he said about racing to the finish on a motor racing circuit. Finishing on a motor circuit is uh, a lot different than actually, uh, yeah, what we are normally used to have uh, as a final. And uh, there's a lot of space normally. There's uh, lots of space to to move up, but uh, usually also the speed is super high. So, uh, yeah, 
you kind of uh, have to find the right balance of uh, being in the right position but also not too forward up there to like burn uh, useless energy and but in the end today i think we'll be extremely nervous uh, already like 60 70 kilometers uh, before the finish because we have then uh, a passage which is which is like quite narrow then it opens up and uh, the run into the last uh, 10 kilometers will be crucial to have a good spot uh, onto the circuit and uh, that's basically my job to coordinate that with the uh, yeah with the guys and uh, and bring basically Edmo and, uh, and 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 Sam in a in a good in the best position possible let's say in the last uh, two kilometers in if you if you enter the circuit in top 10 then uh, then they will be fine I think what Degenkolb said there turned out to be true, didn't it? I mean, it was all about the positioning, but in a completely different way to yesterday. Well, it is all about the positioning, but the funny thing is, if we're going to fast forward to the sprint right now, Alberson de Koenig didn't have position. So that's what a moto track actually does allow you to do. If you've got the strength, which is one of the hard things about winning on moto tracks is that when we get to, let's just go to a, a sprint in the Giro d'Italia. They're often very small rows, very technical. So you get that position, you can almost hold your position from a long way out. Here, as, as it was with Alberson Phoenix, they had Mathieu Vanderpool hit out at about 400 metres to go from about 20 back. It's very uncommon that you can do that in any other sprint. But the moto circuit allowed for that. There were, there were benefits of that. You know, you're at front at the front. We saw Uno X sort of controlling it. Where did Christoph end up in the end? If I if it was another sprint, I would have tipped him for a podium. But because everyone got a run at the end, and having such a great lead-out man like Mathieu Vanderpool, who could produce that power to bring them forward, once again, Jasper Philipson is in astonishing form. Not only sprinting form, but physically, he's able to follow that through a. They were a long way back, a very rough finish, a hard finish, being strung out. I spoke to some other sprinters off the record. Sam Wellsford said he came out of that last corner. He said it was just so fast and hard, I couldn't even move up. I was just sprinting in the wheels. So then when we fast forward to Jasper Philipson, he steps out with Matthew Vanderpool and make everyone look like they're just in a junior race. Interesting that when they came past us from where we were looking across the kind of the field and seeing them go down the finish straight there, it was obvious from a long way out, Philipson had the jump, he had the power, he had the gap. But Caleb Ewan, <laughs> unfortunate for him that there's not another sprint tomorrow because clearly he's, he's going pretty well. And I, I don't want to say that because he was third yesterday, second today, he would necessarily win if there was a sprint stage tomorrow. And, and I guess that's the frustration for the sprinters. They've had these two days back to back and now it's into the Pyrenees. I think the, the, also Caleb is going very well, but his team rode very well today too. I was really impressed with what Lotto did. Considering they're missing their main lead-out man, Jasper Debouche, he's not there, and you know Caleb did an amazing job off that. So that shows to me he has got a lot of great form, good confidence. He only had two men with him in the, inside the last sort of 10K, and they did a lot with that. Being on the front foot forward early, being at the front early, not trying to come late. So I think... Looking forward, there's two sprinters that are well ahead of the rest. Jasper and Caleb. What about Fabio Jakobsen then? Because he was, well, he was in that crash, game over with 600 metres to go. Yesterday, Sudal Quickstep, I mean, I kind of blamed uh, Kasper Askreen for 
gapping the riders behind, but you could equally say, as you did, Mitch, when we were having dinner, that it was as much about the riders behind not holding the wheel. But I suppose in the lead-out, it's about judging that pace and not putting other riders in difficulty and, and creating those splits. Today, Sudar Quickstep hoping to make up for what happened yesterday, and then their main man is on the ground. I think, again, as a result of being out of position or, or, or having maybe an embarrassment of options, too many options mm. uh, as the sprint was unfolding, Francois. It's funny, it's funny to see how a machine that works so well, I mean, the Wolfpack and their lead out in Michael Mercou, even Julien Lafilippe, uh, you know, uh, Yves Lampard, Casper Green. when it works, it's, it's unbeatable, but everything's going wrong for them. Uh, mainly, I think, what, probably the main responsibility comes from Fabio Jakobsen, who, who got a little bit lost, you know, uh, yesterday and today crashed. I mean, it's not his fault, but you, you, there are times when things work out well and at times when it doesn't, you know, they don't. Where you see the experience and the, 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 the real class uh, is, is if you look at the results of Mark Cavendish, because he finished fifth again. He lost, well, Luis Leon Sanchez led the lead at the crash. So he found himself alone with Case Ball, who did a great job. I mean, let's face it, mm. I mean, you know, we, we were not sure exactly what the lead-out trend for Cavendish would be. He was like, Case Ball was his only lead-out man, and Case Ball is, is, has not been a lead-out man that you know, often in the past. Well, obviously, it's, it's kind of working. Sixth, fifth uh, is, is there. He doesn't crash. He's, and by contrast, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit depressing. I mean, frustrating. I'm not, I'm not a great fan, uh, or particular fan of Sudan Quickstep, but to see them, you know, when, when you've seen the, that, that machine crash in your position, I mean, you know, bringing sprints and sprinters to another level, and now nothing, big disappointment. Well, at the finish, Francois, you were there to capture Patrick Lefebvre, the big team boss, his reaction to Jakobsen hitting the deck, find out the extent of the injuries, and of course, well, tomorrow into the mountains, Jakobsen not the greatest climber of, of all the sprinters, not ideal for him, but this is what Patrick Lefebvre said at the finish. He has some uh, wounded on the shoulder and on the back, of course, on the uh, nice assault. I suppose you will not sleep very well this night. Yeah, there was a lot of crash, but the, the questions are, of course, is it the fault of the CP or the fault of the riders? Uh, there are the riders who crashed, no? Some of them, they took too much risk, but with such a bunch, with so much sprinters, so always be chaotic. Tomorrow is the mountains already. Uh, it's not good news for Fabio, is it? Well, it's, uh, it's to take uh, the good bus and try to go to the finish uh, for the next few days, so. Well, Francois, you mentioned Mark Cavendish, sixth yesterday, fifth today, another sprinter like Caleb Ewan, who can see those signs of, of progress in the stage results, but of course will have to put his ambitions on hold until Bordeaux on Friday afternoon. Uh, Bordeaux is a classic sprinter's finish, isn't it? You know, that's where uh, everybody will be fighting for position, coming in over those bridges, lovely wide roads for the sprinters. Uh, we'll see a classic Tour de France sprint there. But Cavendish not too disappointed with how things went this evening, really. This is what he said at the finish. Yeah, until I think everybody that had a plan, every team, it kind of didn't come to fruition in the final for them. There was no team in control. Okay, Jumbo got into the narrow roads good, but then my boys got me exactly there where I wanted to be. So we were good there, but then I think for every team, it just became chaos in the in the final. The corners tight and tight. 
just a mix and pop of uh, of riders. It's a crash. I think Louis's gone down some of it. Nervous there, to be fair. I seen. I, I looked around, and the only guy that had really a lead on my left was um, that I could have jumped on was Mads. He had Stuyven, I think. So I just thought, bam, I get on him. Stuyven will go. Just waiting, waiting for them to go. But they'll go. Probably Mads has to hit out headwind, so you want to leave as late as possible. He just didn't go, and I was like, at one point I thought I should have gone like 350. I wouldn't have won. Someone would have passed me, but. I had to give myself a better shot, if that makes sense. With the headwind, there's not much you can do. Um, but I, I just waited for him to go. I gambled on them going, gap fill, and I seen them all jump. That audibly went, like, swear words, you know? <laughs> and, uh, before I even sprinted, and then it was just making the most of that. I knew I couldn't win once I got the jump on me. So. But, yeah, it's all right. Sorry. Mitch, you wanted to make a point about Jumbo Visma. Wout van Aert, ninth on the stage. Not a pure, pure sprinter, is he? I mean, he probably would need a harder finish than that to have a chance of winning the stage, maybe? Well, it's not the point I really wanted to make, actually. You know, even though Christopher Laporte was looking for him in the sprint, they got a bit messed up. I don't know exactly what their plan was there. This shows me the strength. We're talking about sprint teams who couldn't quite get there. Well-drilled teams. DSM, they had a big plan to be there today. Quickstep weren't quite up there. Even Alpes and Phoenix weren't quite up there. Who enters the moto circuit? Jonas Vingegaard, second into the moto circuit. But you could see it on TV. Jumbo Visma had control, but that shows me the strength these guys had. There were teams trying to run, trying to be in that position. They couldn't do it. This shows me a lot about the team on such a way. They were just literally trying to hold good position. Mm, my impression as well. I may be wrong, but it's that priority in this beginning of the Tour de France is not for Wood Van Aert to win a stage. It's for Jonas Vingegaard to keep out of trouble. And that's probably what the tactics were today. Unbelievable how strong they are to do that, to overrun these sprint teams. What about one rider who has been disappointing so far, Dylan Groenewegen of Jaco Alula. He was eighth yesterday, 14th today. I mean, in sprinting terms, that's kind of nowhere on a finish like this. I mean, did they... Did they get it particularly wrong, or is do you think that Groenewegen has just not got the legs at the moment? It's very hard, and I mean, we're seeing some other teams actually execute it, a split team. It's something that Jasper Filson said in the press conference too. He goes, the question was, why are you guys nailing this so well against these other sprint teams? We've got a whole team dedicated to myself and Mathieu. We're here for the sprints. That's what we're here to do. We are not trying to harness a climber as well. Jayco, they're trying to do a bit of both. And maybe that could be the downfall. I don't know exactly know. But when you've got a whole team behind one sprinter, there's also the psychological side of it, plus, obviously, the physical side of it. Yeah, good point. Simon Yates, of course, third overall, going back into the mountains. You know, not particularly frightening mountain stages for the likes of Simon Yates the next two days. So he'll want to defend that position overall and maybe even improve that position overall in the next couple of days. Well, we were anticipating, hoping, maybe thinking that Mark Cavendish would break the record today. He hasn't done it, might do it on Friday in Bordeaux, might do it later in the race. Who knows, that story goes on. But here we are outside the motor racing circuit. We've got the, the pit lane just behind us there. There's, a, I guess, uh, the sort of VIP boxes up there. And I guess this is where the fans congregate for a beer during the motor racing events that are here. I actually quite like a motor racing circuit finish. I think it works quite well for cycling. This, 
this feels like a bit of a day out. And also, you can see what's going on. I mean, you know, in mo- mm. the problem with uh, cycling, as uh, I mean, our listeners know, is to find the right position where you, you, you can watch the finish. And I mean, obviously, in a motor racing circuit, sometimes in a velodrome as well. But I mean, you, you, you're ideally placed to see the, the, the bunch coming from, a, you know, from afar. You, you, you see the ribbon kind of unfolding and coming, uh, you know, towards you. And yeah, as a show, it, as a spectacle, it was really, uh, yeah, really a, a, a good show. And then was that there was very nice for the crowd. Well, this morning we started out in Dax, and well, we made a small detour. In fact, we didn't make a detour at all, did we? Because we were driving out on the Ore Course, which is the route that most of the vehicles following the tour follow from the start of the stage to the finish. And we passed a monument to one of the Tour de France's greatest sprinters. And, uh, well, that will be the next part, Francois' French flavour. Now for some French flavour would be François Thomas. Where are we, Francois? We're at the foot of a huge statue. I don't know what metal it's made of. It looks like, I don't know, copper, bronze, whatever it is. It's a statue of André Darigade, who was for a long time the most successful sprinter in the Tour de France, until a, a guy named Mark Cavendish came around. Won 22 stages in the Tour, had a brilliant career, world champion he was in 1959. The important thing is that when he was world champion, like he was not only a sprinter, in, uh, when he was world champion in 1959, he, he was world champ- champion after a 222k's breakaway. So it shows, you know, more to his uh, uh, to his talent, to his range than just uh, sprinting abilities. He, he also, well, he was in the yellow jersey and about to win the Tour 1956 when uh, a puncher, you know, ru- ruined his chances around near Luchon. So, well, I saw him this morning as a stars. You know, he's now 94, in great shape. You know, really looked like, well, younger than me, which is not difficult, you know, these days. I'm glad because it's my hometown, my birthplace is Naos, and the tour will go right past my statue. It's a great honour that the tour made me. I brought my last green jersey. Christian Proudhon asked me to bring it because it's the 70th anniversary of the green jersey. The tour went off to a great start. I think we're going to have a great battle and Pogacar will win. Yes, yes, a Frenchman won a stage and it was a great performance. I'm going to watch the stage and keep an eye on the finish because I think Cavendish will win. A brilliant career uh, and there's also an incident that, you know, apparently tarnished and marred his, his, his career and, and it left marks on him. In 1958, at the end of the Tour, at the finish in the Parc des Princes, he had an accident with the, uh, the gardener of the was standing on a course and unfortunately, the the guy died a couple of days uh, later. And uh, Darigat always said that, in spite of all the victories he had in his career and all the success he had, uh, this you know accident left his. Uh, I mean, is is one of the strongest and obviously worst memories uh, in his career. Yeah, that was the stage that finished in the Parc des Princes, and it was Constant Walters who was the the gardener caretaker of the yeah. Parc des Princes, and apparently he was running across to stop photographers either running onto the track or running onto the grass, whichever it was, and uh, yeah, Darigard collided with him. Uh, tragic incident. What do you make of the statue? I think it's impressive, isn't it? Really gone for the definition in the leg muscles. That yeah. just gives an indication of what a powerful sprinter Darigard was. 
Yeah, even even the the face. I mean, it's kind of a. It's it's not supposed to be to look alike. Uh, you know, it'd be, it'd be a real look alike statue. But uh, yeah, in in the in the kind of uh, you know the, the the shape, the traits of the the the, the face are pretty are pretty faithful to to who he was. It's kind it, of a caricature, isn't it? Yeah, it is, yeah I see yeah, what absolutely. you mean. It's yeah. it's kind of it's kind of green now, I suppose, by you know, with the pollution and the air and 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 well, which is quite uh, you know adequate because he he won the the Tour de France green jersey uh, twice. And and this morning he showed that he actually came to the to the start village, village départ, with the with the the the, the second of his two uh, green jerseys. And uh, I I know I'm I'm a, you know I'm. Kind, kind of vintage, but I found it this uh, green jersey much, much more elegant than the green jersey we have now. It's a very pale green, isn't it? It's actually got white sleeves, which yeah, uh, yeah surprised me a little bit. I should say where we are. It's actually called the Rond Point Andre Darigard. It's a roundabout. There's kind of lavender plants attracting the bumblebees. We're in Naros or the outskirts of Naros, which is on the neutralised section of today's course, just a well, a few kilometres from Dax, where we started out this morning. And as you say, Francois, 22 Tour de France stage wins. At the time, well, he won them between 1953 and 1964. And at the time, he would have been the second most successful rider in terms of Tour stage wins. André Leduc was ahead of him at the time. And, well, he's still fifth on the all-time list behind Cavendish, Eddie Merckx, Bernardino and Leduc. And his nickname, he doesn't look... He doesn't have the physique of uh, a greyhound. Le Levrier de Londe, the greyhound of Londe. He doesn't. He doesn't look greyhound-like to me. But that's obviously a reference to the speed rather than the physique. I suppose so. I mean, you know, at the time they were, yeah, uh, riders in general were a little bit more bulky, you know, than they are uh, today. But it's, it's still very. I mean, uh, I'm impressed. In the, some of the, those riders of the past, I remember Ferdi Kubler before he died. I saw him many times in his 90s. I mean, these guys, you know, and we know it. They have strong engines. But you know, there. I mean, this morning he was really talkative, standing, talking to everybody. Uh, yeah, I mean, just a very nice guy. Mitch, first impressions of the statue? Well, I hope they make one like that of me. If I ever got a statue made, it's very impressive. I'm the muscle definition you already said about that. They've really emphasised strong legs and the, the minor details. You know, the shoes and the the, the toe clips, and it's cool. The hairline, the the ears, the eyes—it is, it's unmistakably Darigard. And how tall is that? Do you reckon that's got to be what, 15 feet tall, 18 feet tall, something like that, for us in imperial measures? Sorry, Mitch, what's that in meters? It's got to be yeah, it's got to be 10 meters high at least. Rendez-vous au bus. Who is it outside the timbers? Well, earlier on today at the start in Dax, I went down to the Bahrain victorious team bus to speak to the new British champion, Fred Wright. And, well, I just wanted to preface that interview really with a, a little bit of my thinking because Fred came out of the bus. He said hello, he had to go off to do the sign-on and he said I'll talk to you after I've done the sign-on and in the time that he was away I was kind of 
overthinking what I was going to ask because I obviously wanted to acknowledge the fact that he had lost his teammate Gino Maida in that terrible crash at the Tour de Suisse a few weeks ago. And I was thinking, you know, kind of one of these journalistic questions, when do you ask the difficult question? And in my case, I didn't feel that I could talk to him about riding the Tour in the National Champions jersey and whether or not he thinks he can win a stage without asking him about Gino Maida first. Now, it obviously knocked Fred a little bit off his stride. Not an easy question to have to answer. He also answered the question quite a lot at the National Championships a week ago. I think you'll hear from this that uh, Fred Wright is an impressive young man and he dealt with a difficult question very well. How are you doing after the terrible news, the accident that claimed the life of your teammate Gino Major just a few weeks ago? It's been, uh, yeah, it's been awful to be honest. There's not really many words you can use to describe it to be honest. It's been put a whole different perspective on everything. Yeah, it was a difficult few days around the Nationals just with you know, questioning what <laughs> what I'm doing. But uh, no, it's really nice to be here and yeah, riding in his honour. And the, the, the sense of going on, uh, I mean, obviously you, you paid your tribute when winning the Nationals, so it's clear clear what it meant to you. There's a lot of emotion going on after Nationals, just for, you know, various joy. And I had a nice chat with Stefan Kung yesterday, actually, about it. We had a good long long conversation about, about Gino. And yeah, it's just... It's just about enjoying racing the bike. I think that's 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 all we can. That's all you can do. You got to just got to enjoy it. And uh, I guess look at the well. You can't look at the positives, but that sort of perspective shift, it kind of of it really not meaning anything is it's fresh to just come into this race. Beforehand, there's a lot of pressure like, oh Fred, you're going to win a stage, or whatever. But I'm not. I couldn't give it. <laughs> I yeah, actually, shit, to be yeah. honest, with it, in the in the reality of things, you know, when something like that happens, it's uh, yeah, it's awful. But we gotta just enjoy riding the bikes and enjoy wearing the national championship well, colours. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, getting you the first win since turning professional—a big, big moment—and then you get to wear the the red, white, and blue bands in the biggest race in the world. Oh, it's it's so special. Did it's you have so, any say in the design, so or nice. did the team come up with that? Well, the the team came up for this for this one because of the we with the team pearl that we're going for this in the tour but post tour i think uh, i may even try and ask if i can have some white shorts Bl blythe blythe messaged me straight away and said you have to go white shorts so just for like a couple races every now and again if it's sunny not for the classics just for like sunny stage in paranese at the end or something whip out the white shorts and it gets everyone talking at least you know Nice problem to have, isn't it? Nice problem to have. What about the team? I mean, it must have taken a real boost from Phil Bauhaus's second place yesterday. Yeah, I, I think with Phil, it's always been a case of... We've always known he's, he's, he's one of the top sprinters in the world. I don't think he gets, gets enough credit. He's always there. And he's, you know, he's in, a, in messy sprint finales, which is what we're going to see for the whole tour. It's always messy and chaotic and really fast. I really think he's got a stage within him. And it's, it's really exciting to have, to have someone that you can... Uh, sort of fully commit for and you know with the team we've got here it makes every day exciting because we've got <laughs> Phil to work for we've got Mikel to support this breakaway opportunities is, is, it's an exciting tour for us and lastly I mean how does your responsibility break down with all of those different aspects to what the team could do yeah it's just about going as easy as possible when I can you know the first couple of days in the bus I probably wasn't feeling my best but I sort of took that opportunity to go right let's just relax Go as easy as I can over these climbs, and uh, also think about my own opportunities. But then on on days like today, days like today, it's not 
I don't mind, you know, going a bit deep in the last sort of 30 k's. It keeps things exciting, keeps things fresh. <laughs> I think there's a lot of podcast listeners who will be rooting for Fred Wright later in the Tour de France. He won our Pedaler de Charme Award last year, of course. Very popular with uh, with not just British viewers, I don't think, but uh, certainly he's going to have some opportunities. But once again, Phil Bauhaus. Uh, was up there in the sprint and they've got a lot of work to do with Mikel Lander as well as a as an overall hope for maybe a high position on GC. Now one of the other riders of the opening few days, Francois, Nielsen Paulis of EF Education Easy Post, been in the break the previous three days. Uh, we did wonder whether he'd go again today, but with only one climb and with it being 22 kilometres from the finish and no real points on offer, uh, almost certain that he wouldn't go in that break. But Francois, you spoke to EF's sports director, Charlie Wigalius, at the start to ask what the kind of long-term plan is and whether they have got a vision of taking the polka dot jersey from here all the way to the finish in Paris. Can we expect more? I could I say antics from Nielsen today after you know a few days when he's been going for the polka dot but also showing his enthusiasm and maybe sometimes overdoing it a, bit, a little? Uh, I would hope that today we don't see any of that. <laughs> I think the word that you used is the right one, enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, often with Nielsen obviously is one of his biggest strengths but I think it's also something that we from the team side have to help him with to manage his energy and to manage uh, this enthusiasm. We, we start hearing people think, well, with, with the potential Nielsen has, and if he plays it right, he could, he could you know, keep it all the way. It's obviously a prestigious competition, as all of the main jerseys are in the Tour. It's a complex competition. You obviously have to manage your energy in the right way, and as you go deeper into the race, it can become quite a complex race tactically it's something that is overlaid the deeper you go into the race by other competitions green jerseys team competitions in the past the young riders jersey which obviously isn't relevant nowadays but it's a complex competition and you have to interpret it as you go along nonetheless i'd say that he's definitely got the qualities to to do that is it a goal now that richard unfortunately is not in the race anymore Yeah, it's one of the goals. Uh, We want to be, I mean, essentially we want to race true to our identity and our heritage. We've always been a team that's never been afraid to to move and to to put ourselves out there and to to light the race up. And I think we've got the team to keep doing that. Did we find out, Francois, whether anyone has worn the polka dot jersey for the duration of the Tour de France? I'm, I had a little look and I couldn't find any no, likely candidates I at all. I don't think so. I don't think so. Considering it's, uh, well, the polka dot jersey has only uh, been part of the race since 1975, so there's only 48 years of data to go through. Uh, there was, of course, a mountains classification before that, but they didn't wear the polka dot jersey until 75. Now, Last night in Bayonne, lovely town, wasn't it? We had a nice time recording the podcast with a, a post-race beer, and we were looking forward to a very nice dinner. L'étape de demain, le dîner d'hier. Tomorrow's stage, yesterday's dinner. Yeah, it didn't quite happen. You know that the, these are the, the things that uh, well happen on the Tour de France. As you know, this is my last tour, and you, you, I had to have one of these moments when... I mean, it's funny, because <laughs> Mitch, who hasn't known me for that long, 
uh, said he had never seen me angry mm. before, and I, I'm, it's true. I'm, I'm not. I'm not an angry person generally. But one thing that really gets me is when things don't go according to plan, and when France and French, you know, restaurant owners lose their sense or of hospitality and well I know we have a bad reputations our hosts you know very often and th this was the case again last night I, I called the restaurant I booked which took a very nice little restaurant only what 15-20 minutes before we're supposed to be going there to make sure and I had an email everything was confirmed and she and the, the woman told me she, she didn't oh no I did I don't I didn't receive your booking and don't receive a reservation and we, we had to change plans at the last minute so we we're lucky to find a, actually a place you know mm. around the corner which was average but I mean you know the, the setting was nice and at least it was open but I, I really hate it when uh, sometimes um, you know my country can be sometimes the best in the world to you know cater for people and sometimes can be really dreadful. Mm. Mitch we both had the steak didn't we? Mine was quite chewy and sinewy and there was a big sort of river of fat in it that uh, I, I left quite mm. a bit. Your plate was absolutely clean as a whistle. Well you got yours cooked leather. I don't, I don't often hear that order. Yeah, you said a blue one. And I had blue, right you know, how a steak should be cooked. You said leather, leave it on there, stand on top of it. <laughs> I want that thing at like the sole of my shoe. It so I'm not surprised. It wasn't. I said a point. But must, must, I, must I tell our listeners that uh, yeah, the night ended with a... Oh, of yeah, of course. <laughs> you know, and, uh, a little oh. nightcap. Yeah, tell yeah, us I, about the story. I was, I, I was kind of leading the way with Lionel for a while, but uh, let's face it, the most consistent of all our darts players in the team is definitely Simon Gill, our yeah. photographer. Well, yeah, well, and we, he won. We, we had a game of darts in an Irish <laughs> pub in Bayonne. I mean, we're really we're li really living the French flavour, aren't we there, Francois? <laughs> uh, but it was a great pub. We played a game of darts. I mean, I think everyone would agree my technique is the most classical dart throwing technique, but, but Simon won. Fair play to him. Simon won. Uh, Mitch, you've obviously not had a wasted youth in the bars of Australia playing darts. That much I can say. What's going on? What's going on? No, it's suddenly going got very lively very, here. very crazy. Anyway, we should get to Poe. Uh, where we're going to spend the next two nights. Poe, of course, the gateway to the Pyrenees. And, well, we're there pretty much every year. I can't remember doing a Tour de France when we haven't gone to well, Poe. Well, we actually didn't go... Uh, was it last year or the year before? I mean, oh. we, we missed out on Poe, yes. Wow. Uh, but, I mean, as you say, uh, yeah, we, we, we could actually have probably rent a place you know, yeah. to, to go there every uh, July and, uh, you know, it would be more, you know, we would save money, probably. What's on the menu tomorrow, Mitch? Well, we are starting in Poe, like you said, and we're heading all the way across to Laurence. Is that correct, Francois? Mm -hmm. Laurence. Laurence. La yeah. Oh, good effort. 162.7 kilometres and we're in the hills tomorrow. I'm understating it. We're in the mountains. We've got some big climbs. It's going to be looking good for Nielsen Powell's tomorrow because we do have a horse category climb, which is the Col de Soudé. Soudé. And then later on, we've got also a category three climb in the middle of the race uh, towards the end. And at the towards the end, 144k in, we've also got a category one climb, which is the Marie Blanc. Ma Marie Blanc. There's a sprint early on, which I, I think the sprinters will try and go for that at 50k in, if a break isn't already gone. This will be now a bit of a GC sorting day. We're going to start to see what happens with the top end. Um, Nielsen, I'm assuming, will go up the road, try and collect some points and secure that KOM jersey. It's exciting. 
it is exciting. I mean, it could be one of those days where nothing goes clear until the sprint because Philipson will want to try and cement his lead in that green jersey and Paulis will want the points on the Soudé. And so you can start to see the pattern of the race emerging now and we'll see what that means for the GC riders when they go over the Marie Blanc, which I think is a lovely climb, but it's just not selective enough, is it, Francois, really? The thing is with Marie Blanc, we, we very rarely have Marie Blanc at the finish of a stage. We, we, we very, very often, you know, Marie Blanc is in the middle of a stage or at the start of a stage. And there, you know, with the, the, the descent towards La Reims, in the past, we you know, Primoz Roglic uh, won a stage there and always did well. I mean, Slovenian always, Slovenians always did well in La Reims so far, with Pogatran and Roglic winning stages in La Reims. It's, it's, La Reims has become, it's a small place, you know, known for its cheese. It's become a classic, like uh, La Planche de Belfi. Obviously, uh, Christian Prudhomme loves the place. We've been there three times in, what, six years, maybe? We probably uh, have, yeah. And, and uh, tomorrow night, we'll be there. We will be recording our episode in a bookshop where, Francois, you're doing a signing. And I'm imagining we're going to be absolutely swamped by Francois Tomazo fans. So mm. join us <laughs> tomorrow night on the Cycling Podcast to discuss the first mountain stage of the race. Francois, thank you. Thank you. A little bit, a little bit of gossip before we go. Oh, go on. Yeah. yeah uh, well, it's not. Go- it's actually insider's uh, knowledge I had from a, a very good source this morning. Mm. Uh, we were talking about Jumbo Visma and the tactics and everything, and we know that there's been strong rumors of a change of uh, uh, sponsors for Jumbo Visma at the end of the season. I heard. You know, you, you heard about this. Uh, New town Saudi Arabia are building in the middle of nowhere, and and uh, and there's lots of uh, publicity and money involved in that. And apparently, Jumbo Visma, the t- cycling team, would be involved uh, in in that uh, old adventure and experience. And you know, uh, well, this experience in Saudi Arabia might be involved in the, uh, as a new partner or sponsor of Jumbo Visma next season. We'll see if my source was good. Interesting, interesting. Well, we, a few years ago, we did an episode in which Richard Moore, Daniel and I uh, kind of assessed the ethical values of the World Tour team sponsors. I mean, it was a slightly controversial uh, episode because lots of fans of cycling don't want to be confronted with the fact that You know, there are a lot of oil companies, there are a lot of Middle Eastern states which have got, you know, questionable human rights ethos. People don't really want all of that kind of real life polluting, for want of a better word, the sport that they love. And I understand that completely, but I'm going to work on something over the course of the race about this phenomenon of sponsor washing, because I think it's becoming more and more apparent that cycling of all sports, and and now that we're seeing the likes of Qatar and Saudi Arabia and oil companies and, uh, you know, big finance companies, you know, they've kind of taken over sports like tennis and golf, soccer. Cycling is kind of the low-hanging fruit and is not in a position to turn down money from anybody. And so this presents a sort of an ethical dilemma for some people in the sport. But that's for uh, later on in the race. Before then, Mitch, I might ask you about how you felt about your sponsors, what you knew about them, you know, and all of that kind of thing. But we'll save that for another day. Until then, we ought to get to Po and have some dinner. So Let's thank you. do that. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb, and Lionel Burney.